just to set the scene for us, I want to take you back to one of the most exciting and dangerous times in history. It was a time when the early church grew explosively and spread right throughout the known world until it had eclipsed every other major religion. They did it without an army. They did it without finances. The offering plates of mostly slaves were not exactly bulging. They did it without denominational organizations. They did it without influential people. And they did it despite all the might of the Roman Empire fiercely persecuting them and executing them. They did it despite pressure from other religions to merge ideas and fit in pressure from outside. They did it even though like rapidly spreading tumours within the church were false ideas of the intellectual elites of the day being taught by many teachers in many sort of local house-to-house groups. So how were they going to ensure that what was spread was the true message, the true good news message? and not just some kind of more marketable substitute that accommodated to all of these pressures, fit in, maybe wasn't too challenging for the Romans and wasn't too challenging for those who believed something different. Um, how, you know, how would they ensure that at a time when there was no mass printing? You couldn't send round a book because you couldn't print it very quickly. Um, you couldn't uh, phone people to talk to them in another town. So you couldn't do that. You might have to travel for uh, a number of days, slow travel. How would they do it? And think about the stakes, right? If that sort of cancerous false teaching that was knocking around had prevailed, then very soon the church would have been in a terminal condition. And it actually went to the wire, but they did it. And that amazing transformation happened in those first 400 years after the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So um, now there's struggles in that background, in that sort of that fierce battleground. And it was a fierce battleground. They gave us three important things. The first thing they did is, because remember, they didn't have a New Testament, by the way. They didn't have a Bible either. Um, so, but what they did, they gave us three things. They all happened to begin with C, something we call the canon, which is, what are the books that have a genuine connection to the apostles, to the people who are eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death and resurrection? So we have our New Testament. They also gave us councils, which is kind of a bit like conferences, uh, where they'd get leaders together and they would address challenges together, work through issues. And that would keep the churches both relevant but also true to God's word. And the third thing they did, which is what we're looking at in our series, is they gave us creeds. Simple kind of lists, summaries of the key things that they believed. And the Apostles' Creed, this one, was one of the earliest of those. And it was actually used often when people were um, saying that they wanted to decide to turn to Jesus, trust him. The first thing they would probably be asked to do is say, be baptized, they'd be immersed in water. And this is what they would say. They'd say, they'd speak out the creed because they'd say, this, this is what I'm coming into and this is what I now stand for. So the creed has an amazing place. Let's just quickly flip to uh, it. Are you okay there? Shall I try? Uh, well, thanks, John. Might be a bit of a double act today. I've forgotten I've got this. Very good. Um, so this is a creed here. I said it before. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. 
He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he'll come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So we've got those three bits. They're all, they all start in there by the phrase, I believe. So there's three natural chunks there we're directed to. And I don't know if you noticed, but the middle one is sort of pretty big. It's interesting, isn't it? So and the first one's all about the Father, and the second one goes uh, all about um, things that relate to Jesus, the Son. And the third one looks at the Holy Spirit and some other things as well. So uh, that's interesting too, isn't it, as a structure? Um, so um, if we kind of zero in on that middle bit for a minute, what we see is that there are six things in there. Um, all things that it says he, he. So, so we believe in Jesus, his only son, our Lord. So it, 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 it's about a person, not a series of propositions. We believe in a person. Our faith is about a person. Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And Lloyd uh, shared with us um, particularly this, uh, this part previously, like who is Jesus? A central question that we all have to ask. What do you make of him? Who is he? Is he who he claims to be? Uh, and what the scripture says, he's... He's the Christ, the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, and our Lord. And so, and Lloyd unpacked for us how he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So what was going on in that that meant Jesus was fully God and fully man? So those are the first, uh, you know, of those six things that relate to, five of them are about things that are things that have happened. They're things Jesus did, actually. And then the sixth one is about something that he's going to do. So five very much kind of um, what's already happened to build on what will happen, which is he will come again. So, so that's, the, um, that's the structure. Five, yeah, and, and what we would talk, talk about this whole section is, this is like us zeroing in on the person and the work of Jesus. So Lloyd's particularly talked about the person of Jesus, who he is. And this stuff here is a bit about the work of Jesus. Why did he come? So... Um, I want to uh, just, uh, if you can, uh, if you've got a Bible, do feel free to turn uh, to uh, Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Acts, let's try again, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. And we're going to look at um, uh, just really the first few verses there. Um, so I'm going to flash it up on the screen in a second. So if you've got it on an app, great. If you want to look at it, if uh, uh, not, we can kind of see, see, see some of this. So, so this is Paul speaking uh, to the church in Corinth. He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So this gospel, this message of good news is what might save and transform your life for eternity. So that's pretty important, right? Let's listen up. And not only that, he then says, as of first importance, okay? So of all the things that Paul talks about, this is the most important thing. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And then it says, in lots of ways, he appeared. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500 people at the same time, most of whom are still around. So you can talk to them if you don't. The Corinthians could talk to them if they wanted to check it out. And he appeared to James, and then all the apostles, and last he appeared to me. So he did a lot of appearing, I think we can conclude from that. So um, let's, um, let's just think about that then a little bit more. 
Um, you know, why is this so critical? And what is Paul emphasizing? Well, there are two historical events there. Jesus was crucified, executed, um, in a way that thousands of other people were executed actually on a particular day, and died and was buried, uh, buried in uh, a tomb that was borrowed. So that's a historical event. And the second historical event was that he was having descended into, into descended to the dead, he ascended, and he was raised from the death. And uh, that's a historical and an unprecedented event. So there were historical events, but you notice it says according to the scripture. See, um, it was predicted. And the scripture, what we read in the Bible, both for, foresaw this happening, you know, hundreds of years before it happened, and also is the place to go to understand why it happened, what was going on. Rather than just coming up with your own theory, maybe start with the people who predicted it was going to happen. And actually that was, you can see in the scripture. And it was with a really clear and crucial purpose. And of course, that final point, it was very widely witnessed. So this is a historical uh, thing. And um, so, so just in terms of those historical events, you'll note that it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. So that's very precise. It's like, this is the guy who was the governor of, of, uh, of, of, of Jerusalem at the time. Yeah, really, really specific. This is not about like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I'm going to tell you a story. There's none of that. This is like, this is exactly when this happened. This was the guy who was involved. This was a guy who presided over the trial and the miscarriage of justice. It was this guy. So very focused, very specific. And um, uh, the other thing, uh, I guess, just to, um, just to note actually before we go on, don't you think it's a bit odd that we went straight from what Lord was talking about, about Jesus being conceived, you know, like an embryo in the womb, and there was nothing else in the creed about like the next 33 years of Jesus' life. It wasn't in there. It went straight from the fact that he was conceived and then zeroed in on, and he died and rose again. So that's a bit odd, really, isn't it? Don't you think? And, and yet that's what we see, even with the, the Gospels. So if you look, say, at the Gospel of Mark, right? Mark spends 27% of the Gospel, what he writes, on the last week, the last 0.05% of Jesus' life. And it takes more than a quarter of his whole Gospel. So there's something about zeroing in, because this is what's happening here is really important. Look at the fine detail, what's going on. This really matters. So we see Jesus um, was crucified and uh, dead and buried. And as I said, he, he was raised. So it was predicted and interpreted by scripture. What do I mean by that? So look, firstly, the prophets had described it and foretold it. Let me just read to you. This is Isaiah 53. It says, uh, written hundreds of years before Jesus. He had no majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced, Jesus was pierced with a sword, by the way. He was pierced with a spear for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Again, 
what does crucifixion do? It's a crushing weight. Your own weight crushes you, and and and, uh, and uh, ultimately you um, you suffocate. He was bruised for our, uh, so he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted and yet did not open his mouth. Jesus didn't answer when they said, how do you rebut the charges against you? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, of his generation, who of his generation protested? They called for Barabbas. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with a wicked and with the rich in his death. He died the grave, he died among thieves, and a rich guy, Joseph of Arimathea, lent a tomb to bury him in. Though he'd done no violence, no deceit was in his mouth, yet it was for the Lord's will to cause him to, to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge or knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear his, their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great. I'll give him divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, the other criminals. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, so much in there that echoes so closely what happened on that final day. Amazing. Um, and you know, Peter, speaking to the crowd, quotes David in his psalm, where his prediction, you know, uh, David said, you, you, in, in the psalm he's writing, you won't abandon me to the realm of the dead or let your holy one see decay. Jesus himself on the cross quotes Psalm 22. And that includes this, this thing, again, written by David many, many, many hundreds of years before. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare at and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So, so many fine details of what happened when Jesus was on the cross, when people mocked him, it was written in that psalm. When, when the soldiers played dice to work out who would get his nice robe, that was, in the, that was quoted in the psalm. When they pierced his hands and his feet, that was crucifixion, that was in the psalm. So it was definitely foreshadowed and predicted. And Jesus himself also predicted it ahead of time. John ten nineteen says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus knew both his death and the resurrection were, were going to happen. And of course, you know, the risen Jesus walking along with the two, uh, two people on the road to Emmaus, when they were looking really downcast, he said, just the Bible just says it, he, he just uh, explained from the scriptures why the Christ had to suffer, because it was all in there, it was all written down. It was all clear that this thing that was going to happen, this central thing, had a particular meaning. And so, 
if it was so clearly written, why wouldn't we look at um, th the same sources that were spot on with their prediction? We might look to say, well, let's understand what you've said this was all about. What did this mean? And um, we've already read it a bit in the prophecy from Isaiah. It says, we've all like sheep gone astray, each of us to his own way. The Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity or wrongdoing of all of us. So, um, but we also hear it from Jesus' own lips. He says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we often think of ransom, I guess, uh, I, I don't know about you, I think of that like kidnapping, right? That's, you know, and have you seen the telly programs? Yeah, it's a kidnapping and, you know, somebody has to pay a ransom and if they pay a ransom, they get freed. Um, and, and that's, and that's, that's okay as a, as a, as a meaning. But back in Old Testament times, the word ransom also had some other meanings. It was the price that would be paid by one who is guilty as a substitution instead of being executed. So if you had committed manslaughter under the law, then then you might be, uh, you might have to forfeit your life, but if you could pay a ransom to those who were injured by the crime that you committed, then you know, you wouldn't face those consequences. So, and, and, and that exact word that somehow you, you, we so wrong, we've so wronged God by all the stuff that we've done. Every time we put ourselves at the center, we have this thing called eye disease. You know, it's all about me. And every time we do that, we fall short of what, short of what God's standards. We, we, um, we, cr we create a situation where we've, we've, we've hurt others and we've hurt God. And yet, um, Jesus pays our ransom so, so that the, the injured party actually uh, is, is, is paid for the things that we've done wrong. So um, the other uh, reason you, where you would hear this particular two other things is firstly, um, prisoners of war. So you would hear ransom, you know, if someone was caught and was in a prison of war, you know, you'd, 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 you'd gone, you'd, you know, you've might, you're maybe back the wrong side or you'd been, you'd been captured or whatever. Um, then, you know, actually someone from your side would say, hey, we want to pay the ransom. We want you back. We want you back where you belong. And, and the third way that ransom would be used is it would be used in a sense in the slave market. So again, someone would be heavily indebted and they couldn't get out of their own debt and they'd be sold into slavery. So they were, they were owned by, they were, they were not free, not free at all. And they could do nothing about it. And actually someone would come along and say, well, I'll pay the ransom for that slave. And all of a sudden who they are changes because they're no longer captive anymore. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So that sense of the purpose of why Jesus died. And of course, as we said, it's absolutely widely witnessed. Um, you know, more than 500 people, you know, Jesus' disciples stood up and actually what they said when they were talking about this, they said, you know, you crucified him, he, he, he died, but he, he was raised again. And we're witnesses to the fact. So we witnessed it and we saw it all happen. We, it's first-hand experience for us. So it's a very stubborn fact. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is, um, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty stubborn thing because you might think to yourself, what would it be that would take a bunch of demoralized followers from having seen their 
leader executed in the most cruel death known at the time, like many other criminals and several others even on that very day, what would turn them into fearless people who'd stand up and give their lives for the truth that they were claiming that this person had defeated death and was genuinely the Lord of all? Why would they do that if there was a body still you know, stuck in a tomb somewhere. And why wouldn't the authorities, if they knew that well, that was going on and those rumours were spreading and this thing was getting forced, why wouldn't they say, hey, look, here's Jesus' dead body. That's rubbish. Well, they couldn't produce a body. There was no body. We hear that's, that's what the eyewitness can't see. And some said, well, maybe the disciples hid it. Yeah, right. Of course you'd go and give your life to claim that Jesus rose from the dead when actually you just kind of dragged it and put it into a, you know, like you had a dirty secret that all the time Jesus was really dead. But no, 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 I'm still going to, I'm still willing to give my life and my family's life to, 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 to testify to the truth and to follow him. It doesn't make any sense. All the alternatives are actually implausible. And um, if, you, if you take away what's, all, what's implausible, all you're left with is what's, uh, is what's miraculous and supernatural, that Jesus rose from the dead. So just consider two things, and there isn't time this morning to go into the detail, but I just want to just give you a sense of what was the impact of the cross and what was the meaning of the resurrection. It's just a couple of things that should encourage us. So this is the impact of the cross. I'm not going to go through all these, but the, the cross shows the character of God, his love and his goodness. It abolishes the need for the law. We don't have to come to God and try and be right with God by being good people. You know, and if we've got just about enough good deeds, we'll, it'll tip some kind of balance. There is no balance. We failed the test and Jesus found a different way for us. The cross breaks the controlling power of sin. It's the basis of being justified, declared right before God and reconciled to him. It's the power of God to save us and make us whole. See, we're not just spirits, but we are spirit and body. And so Jesus rose in, uh, in, in spirit and body. Gives us a new beginning. And yet that's not just like a clean slate, by the way. It's a lot more than that. It's an amazing example of sacrificial love. And it gives us hope amidst the most visible failures. And through it, God disarmed those who would accuse us. So they, he took away what stood against us, a charge sheet against us. He dealt with it. This is what the Bible said. And there are three good good images there. One is the courtroom that, you know, we go from being the problem was our guilt. And so we're declared justified, not guilty. Um, the other is, as we said, the slave market. We're indebted and we're powerless. And yet the solution is redemption and freedom. And the third is more one of family. We're estranged from God because actually fundamentally it's a breaking of relationship. And so what the cross does is it brings reconciliation. It a bit like the prodigal father, the prodigal son and the father running to meet the son. That's what the cross was doing because it was dealing with a central problem we have, which is that our sin separates from God. Amazing. Um, what about the meaning of the resurrection? Again, we could, uh, we could talk about this for ages, but um, one of the, uh, the, the, the things that the, the Bible says is that um, God declared that Jesus is his son when he raised him from the dead. Because actually, we could have said, well, Jesus died, and, but maybe, maybe Jesus was wrong about his purpose and why he died, you know. But he, so he just he, he died, but it was some other reason. But actually, 
God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead to say, actually, I accept what you've done and it was for what you said it was. So you've conquered death. It shows that the curse of sin is reversible. And it's a guarantee that actually if Jesus was raised, then we too will be raised in the future. There is a hope for that. And it's power for living, the power of an indestructible life. Jesus wasn't resuscitated, and it wasn't like when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was raised, but then he went on and got old and died again, right? Jesus was raised indestructible. So it was a new life that goes on forever. And it shows that eternal future and that eternal hope. The sense of what God's done is quite amazing, which is why it zeroes right in and why it's in the creed. Because actually, even though Jesus living a good life was good, we won't be right with God just by following his example. We have to accept what Jesus did for us on the cross, dying for us, dying in our place. And, um, you know, the, uh, the amazing thing is we, we, we are justified. Now, there's a phrase that offers you, oh, that what does justify mean? It means just as if I'd never sinned. It kind of doesn't. He's more than that. It's not like a new leaf, turn over a new leaf and try harder. It means just as if I didn't live my perfect life and did everything right. Because God looks at us and says, you know, he looks at Jesus, he looked at Jesus on the cross and said, I'm going to see all the wrongdoing of all of us lot on, on my son. But he looks at us and he says, I'm going to see all the right doing of Jesus on you. So don't try and earn it because actually, it's almost like, imagine doing a test. You're, 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 remember when you're back at school and you're doing a test and actually it's going really badly and you've hardly written anything on it. And actually there's somebody in the next desk and actually they've got perfect marks. And just as you go up and hand, hand it in, they switch your test sheet and their test sheet. They put their name on yours and yours on theirs. So they get the consequence of complete failure. You get the consequence of getting every single thing right. That's what the divine exchange did when Jesus died on the cross for us, which is why it's an amazing thing. So um, I'm going to um, suggest that we uh, uh, finish really at this point, but really important to think about, you know, this was an essential for the early church at that, at that time of fierce trial and testing. And yeah, maybe you're facing you know, a fierce battleground in your life. Well, what's the right thing to do? back to the fundamentals, back to who Jesus is and what he's done for you, back to the cross and the resurrection. And um, uh, we began by saying that faith is about a person, not a set of propositions. And Jesus said it simply, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Paul said, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I like how Tim Keller puts it. I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. But I am so, so loved that he was glad to die for me.